Verse 4 of Acts 13 says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, speaking of Barnabas and Saul, who in this chapter become, his name's changed to Paul, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Verse 52, the very last verse of Acts 13, says, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for this opportunity to draw near to you. God, we're so thankful that we can sing together and fellowship together, and it's so precious to be able to do that. And, and yet what separates us from just a, another social group is that, is that we together get to draw near to you, the living God. And we get to draw near, not with our tails between our legs, but even boldly because of what Christ has done. And so, Father, I pray this morning, not based on how our week has been or even how this morning has gone or even our emotions right now after a great time of worship, but based on the finished work of Jesus, we would draw near to you and we would sit at your feet, as it were, and hear what you have to say to us today. I pray that you'd speak powerfully through your word this morning. Use me. Holy Spirit, I I invite you to come and I, I want to be your instrument today. In Jesus' name, amen. What do Paul Revere, Winston Churchill, and the Apostle Paul have in common? (laughs) They're all dead. There's probably lots of things. Okay, I got one thing in mind, okay? They were all given the task of delivering a big and urgent message that called for various kinds of responses. You guys remember the story of Paul Revere? If you grew up in, uh, if you went to school, I guess, Probably everyone here at least has heard of Paul Revere. He took up the mission of warning John Hancock and Samuel Adams and the other patriots that the British were coming, that they were approaching Lexington on the eve of April 18th, 1775. And whether or not he said these exact words, we know that his message was, the British are coming, right? And the response was a serious and sober arming of oneself. They were getting ready for war. It was time to go to war. Winston Churchill had a different tone and message. On May 8th, 1945, after a radio address, he spoke twice to to crowds of people in London. This, of course, was was Victory in Europe Day. After D-Day was like, I think it was June 8th, 1944, and it was almost another year of conflict. And then finally, May 8th, 1945, was Victory in Europe Day. Churchill's message was one of victory. Here's what he said, at least part of what he said. My, my dear friends, this is your hour. This is not a victory of a party or of any class. It's a victory of the great British nation as a whole. So the response of the people who heard that message was very different than those who heard Paul Revere's message. When the crowds heard Winston Churchill speaking, they, they began to celebrate, dance in the streets, crack open bottles of champagne. It was time to celebrate. The, victory, the, the war was over. Victory had been won. Well, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were sent with a message as well. They were sent with a message. And really, this is the, the thrust of the entire book of Acts, certainly of Acts 13. But way back in Acts chapter 1, 
when Jesus was still on earth, before he ascended, he was speaking to his disciples, his apostles, and he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to receive power. And then he said this, to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And here in Acts 13, we see this first foreign mission sending, if you will, and they're sent out with one purpose, to spread a message, to spread a message. So let's check out what, how they did this, let's, and we're going to look at this message in particular. Our text starts out by saying Barnabas and Saul went out by the, by the Holy Spirit, verse 4. This is, again, the message of the book of Acts. And this is the story of the church in every age, wherever the gospel has made inroads in every nation. It has been because God's people have been sent, not by a missions agency mainly, but by the Holy Spirit. And so these men are sent out by the Holy Spirit and in the power of the Holy Spirit. They were people sent out by the Spirit of God. And honestly, this can be our story. Every time we gather in the Lord's presence together and we leave here, think about we leave here. There's, there's this one church. um, I was at the church for some reason. I can't remember the name of it. Doesn't matter. And as you leave the parking lot, there's a sign that says something like you are now leaving to go into your mission field. And I love that idea because We can live as though, and we ought to live as though we are sent. Maybe not to Afghanistan or Mexico, but into our workplace and into our neighborhood and even into our homes with our children. So Barnabas and Paul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. You and I as well are sent out by the Holy Spirit. These two sailed to the island of Cyprus. So they were in Antioch, which is in present-day Syria, They sailed across the Mediterranean Sea to this island called Cyprus, and they began spreading this message. They come to a town called Salamis, I think is how you say it. It's on the northeast corner of Cyprus, and they preached in the synagogues. Now, what's important about this is in Jewish communities, depending on how many Jews there were, they would have at least one synagogue and sometimes many, multiple synagogues. And Paul's practice was to make a beeline for the synagogue. And he preached there everywhere he went. So he went to this town, Salamis, preached in the synagogue there, and they make their way all through the entire island. They start in the northeast corner. They go down to the southwest corner, going out throughout the whole island, preaching in synagogues. And upon coming to a town called Paphos, they meet two people Luke wants us to focus on. And Luke shows us the radically different ways that they respond to the gospel. The first man that we see is a a magician. His name is Bar-Jesus, or another name that he's called in this text is Elamis. He is a magician. And then we also see Elamis' boss, a guy named Sergius Paulus, who is a proconsul. A proconsul is like a governor of a province. They were in charge of the civil and military resources of a province. So this Sergius Paulus was the proconsul of probably of the entire island of Cyprus. This proconsul had heard the message that Barnabas and Paul were speaking, right? I mean, the word had gotten out. They'd made their way through the entire island and he summoned them. He wanted to hear this message. The magician, on the other hand, thought, oh my goodness, if, if he hears this message 
and it has the effect on him that it's having on other people, my job might be lost. And so he wanted to divert his attention. He wanted to distract. He wanted to turn, it says in our text, Sergius Paulus away from the faith. Let's see what happens in verse, verses 8 to 11. If you have your Bibles, look at it. Starting in verse 8. But Elamis, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, meaning Barnabas and Saul, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, I love that. But Saul, it's like, this guy's going down, all right? But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And he said this, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Listen to what he says next. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist fell upon this man's eyes. Darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, I don't know about you, but I would call that a severe beatdown. I mean, this guy was trying to divert attention from Christ and the gospel and Paul, filled with the Spirit, calls this man out, names him as an enemy of righteousness, son of the devil, and even pronounces God's temporary judgment upon him by blinding him. It's amazing. Paul here shows that that the evil powers of Satan stand no chance against God. Now, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see where it appears that the enemies of the gospel get the upper hand. But we need to know God is sovereign. God is mighty and powerful. And this this story shows us the powers of Satan pose no threat to God and his power. Compared to God's power, remember Paul was filled with the Spirit. It wasn't just Paul doing this. He was filled with the Spirit. Compared to God's power, demonic power is like a mosquito swarming around your face that you squash on your shoulder. You've been doing that a lot lately, haven't you? Even more, compared to God's power, satanic power is like this tiny ant standing in the way of the 1st Calvary Division of the U.S. Army. It stands no chance whatsoever. Now, if you had been there and saw this, Paul called this man out and pronounce judgment upon him, and you had heard the gospel that Paul preached, how would you respond? Here's how the proconsul responded. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, and then he says this, says this for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He saw what happened. He heard the message And he thought, wow, this is from God. He was astonished at the teaching. The word astonished means to be struck with amazement. In the rest of the chapter, we get to see what this message was, what this teaching was that amazed this proconsul. So it wasn't just that he saw this miracle or this strange and miraculous phenomenon, but he heard the message and was astonished at the teaching, and he believed it. 
Well, this message that Paul and Barnabas preach spread like crazy. Cyprus, but then it begins to spread into Asia Minor or present-day Turkey. So much so that verse 49 says this, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So here's what happened. Paul and his companions sailed to Cy- from Cyprus to Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and come to a city called Antioch. It's not the same Antioch that we saw earlier in chapter 13. It's, it's an Antioch in a different part of the world. It's a- Antioch in Asia Minor. Like usual, Paul makes a beeline for the synagogue. And while sitting in the synagogue, it says the prophets were read, as they always would have been read in the synagogue. And the ruler of the synagogue passed a note to Paul. And the note said, hey, you got anything to share? Isn't that amazing? You have a word of encouragement for us? I wonder if that ruler of the synagogue that night when he went to bed said, what was I doing? (laughs) Unless he got converted, of course. We don't know for sure. So a note gets to Paul, says, do you have a word of encouragement? And Paul is like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I thought about this yesterday. I pray that we would be as bold as Paul when, if given an opportunity in a setting, got anything to share? You got a word of encouragement that we would be ready in an instant to stand up and speak for Christ. Second Timothy four says, be ready in season and out of season, be ready in season and out of season. So Paul's like perfect. And he stands up and begins to speak. And what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to point out four things from Paul's message. This is the way that I break it down. Four things. First, he announces news. Second, he offers a gift. Third, he calls for a response. And fourth, we see a certain outcome that is astounding. So first, Paul announces news. And here's what he announces. Paul announces the good news of a big and sovereign God who saves. He announces the news of a big, sovereign God who saves. Verses 16 to 41 reads like a short summary of redemptive history and the actions of God. It is so God-centered. I mean, it says, God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and God did this. Paul's message is that God is big and he is the author of history. God is sovereign and he is working out his purposes for his glory. And all of history, all of Israel's history was leading forward to the coming and saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what he announces. So Paul stood up and says he motioned to the people. He got their attention and he began to speak. And I want to I just quickly, I'm going to cover like 25 verses in five minutes. Okay? But I, wanna, I just want to give, like give you an idea of how his message went. It's amazing. Like we don't hear people talk this way very often. So buckle up. Here, here's what he says. All right? Verse 17. The first part of verse 17. Paul says that God chose Israel to be his covenant people. God chose them. 
verse 17b says that God made the people great while in Egypt. How do they become great? Because God made them great. Verse 17c says that God led the people of Israel out of Egypt by his power. How did they get out? God led them. Verse 18 says that God put up with them in the wilderness. It, It could be translated, God carried them through the wilderness for 40 years. How did they get through the wilderness? God carried them. Verse 19a says that God destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. You're like, I thought Joshua did that. Paul says God did. Verse 19b says that God gave them the promised land as their inheritance. God gave it to them. Verse 20 says that God gave them judges. Verse 21 says that God gave them Saul as a king. Verse 22 says that at the right time, when God saw fit, God removed Saul as their king. And God gave them David as their king. Verse 23 says that through David's line of descendants, God brought the Messiah, Jesus, to Israel. Like none of this is just happening by chance. None of this is just, there's this, there's this teaching in certain part, parts of the body of Christ that God doesn't even know the future. It's just, he's just not even sure exactly what's going to happen in the future. Here we see not only does God know the future, God is seeing fit that his future takes place. It's amazing. Verse 26 says that God sent this message of salvation. Verse 27 says that God was even working out his plan through the actions of evil men when Jesus was condemned and given the death sentence of crucifixion. God was working out his plan. Verse 29 says that God's plan was worked out through those who executed Christ and laid his corpse in a tomb. God worked out his plan even through those who killed Christ, slaughtered our Savior. Verse 29 says that God's plan was worked out through the, excuse me, verse 30 says that God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 33 says that God fulfilled his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, the fathers, by raising Jesus from the dead. Verse 40 says that God gives freedom. God gives freedom to all who believe. And finally, verse 48, which actually is not a part of the the sermon, Paul's sermon, but a commentary of Luke. It just continues this theme. Here's what it says. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And listen to this part. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, there was something at work even before their believing. God was at work. Even their faith, even their believing was a gift of God's grace. Now, why does Paul speak this way in this sermon? Why is he he highlighting the action of God? I don't think it's wrong to say God used Moses to lead the people out of Israel. That's just not what Paul says. He says God did it. He is saying, I think Paul is trying to rivet his hearers. And this morning, the spirit wants to grab a hold of us by the scruff of the neck and say, there is a great and awesome God. And you need to know him. You need to think about him. You need to think about him. 
as soon as church is over, my son has a football game at noon. It's like, oh man, I got to, we got to think about God, not football or lunch or we need to reckon with God. We need to think about him. We need to know him. He is the author of history. You are not the captain of your ship. God is. You're not the master of your fate. God is. Paul wants us to know that. Paul is saying that God is really working in history and he's not playing the supporting role. He is the main actor in his history, working out his plan and purposes. God is the ultimate explanation for and meaning of everything. You see, if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, if you're not careful, we tend to read the Bible in a way where, where we see ourselves everywhere. We read the, the story of David and Goliath and we think, this shows me I need to be like David and face my giant, the giant enemies in my life. And I'm not saying there's, it's altogether wrong. But there is a better way to read the Bible and see the activity or what's going on in the Bible and is to see God everywhere. That God is at work. Reading the scriptures to see who God is and what he has accomplished and what he will do today and what he promises to do in the future. Paul helps us to see that the Bible is about God. All of redemptive history is about God. Paul forces us to focus our attention vertically and not merely at a horizontal plane. And it's easy to do that. It is. It's easy to do that. Remember, Paul was speaking in a synagogue, predominantly to Jews. Why was it, and just to, just to rehearse again, why was Israel God's people? Because of something they did? No, because God chose them. How did they grow to be such a great population and such a powerful group of people in Egypt? Because God made them powerful and strong in Egypt. How did they get out of Egypt? God, with a mighty uplifted arm, led them out of Egypt. How did they make it through the wilderness? God carried them through the wilderness. And in the fullness of time, God sent, God sent his son Jesus into the world. And at just the right time, according to Romans 4, God delivered Jesus up to be crucified on a cross. God did it. God poured out his righteous and holy wrath upon Jesus for your sins and my sins. It required the death of Christ. And so God did it. And on the third day, God raised Jesus up from the dead. So let's think this through for you and me. If you are saved... Let me restate that. If you believe in Christ, if you are believing in Jesus and what he accomplished, if you believe the songs we sang this morning, oh my goodness, I love those songs. I love those last two songs. I'm like a, I'm a hymn guy, okay? I mean, I like the way we do them kind of more modern way, but I love hymns. If you believe the songs we sang today, if you love Christ, it is because God saved you. It is because 
God gave you the gift of faith. It is because God gave you a new heart, one that now loves him rather than hates him. And in some instances, and this might resonate with you, in some instances, he moved heaven and earth to do so in your life. And God is here today. God is here today. Paul announces the good news of a big, sovereign God who saves. Number two, Paul offers something. And here's what he offers. In this passage, or in this sermon, Paul offers the gift of righteousness through Jesus. Look at verses 38 and 39. It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Verse 39 says, everyone is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I think the ESV, which is what I read and teach out of, says freed. I I think a better word is justified. In fact, every other, well, not every other time. Almost every other time, this Greek word is used in the New Testament. It's translated justified or, or, or just or acquitted. It's some kind of legal term. And so I, I, I think that's the way we're to take it in this passage, especially when Paul connects it with the law of Moses. The law of Moses can't free you, but through Christ, you can be justified. So what does it mean to be justified? To be justified means to have the righteousness of Christ credited to your bankrupt account. You and I, in terms of righteousness in ourselves, are bankrupt before God. Not before other people, but before God. We are utterly bankrupt. To be justified is to have the righteousness of Christ credited, which is perfect, by the way, credited to our bankrupt account. You see, mankind's biggest problem, it was for the first hearers of Paul's sermon, and it is for us, and it's it's the biggest problem for every human being that's ever lived on the face of the earth or ever will live. Our biggest problem is not that we need our love tank filled. Our biggest problem is that we need righteousness. Our biggest problem is that we are unrighteous and therefore guilty before a righteous God. So to be justified means to be clothed with the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ, which can can never be improved upon. It can never be improved upon, and it can never be diminished. The guy, uh, John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, he tells of a time when he was walking through a field one day, And this thought plopped down into his mind. I think the spirit probably did it. Definitely did it. So the spirit plopped a thought into his mind, and it it was this. Your righteousness is in heaven. He's like, huh. And he went back to his house, and he scoured the Bible to try to find, is that, is is there proof of that in the scriptures? And he came to Jeremiah 9.23, which says, which, which is the passage that says, the Lord is your righteousness. In other words, the Lord Jesus, it's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. The Lord is your righteousness. And he said, all of a sudden it dawned on me. 
that I have a righteousness that cannot be improved upon, cannot be diminished. So whether or not I'm in a good frame of mind or a poor frame of mind, my righteousness before God is the same. And that is absolutely, breathtakingly freeing. To live before God in the light of this truth is glorious beyond measure. If you are like me, I know my failures. I know my own struggle against sin. And if I bring that to my relationship with God, of course we repent of it, we confess it, but if I bring, if that's always in my mind when I approach God, I I approach him timid. I approach him trying to, have I done enough, God? No, that's not the good news. That's not the gospel. To be justified is to stand before God in Christ just as if I've never sinned. Maybe you've heard that before. And I always like to add just one thing to that, okay? Because it's more than that. It's more than just having our sins removed, like just as if I've never sinned. There is a positive aspect to it as well because it's the positive obedience of Christ. It's the positive righteousness of Christ that's credited to our account. So it's not living before God just as if I've never sinned. It's also living before God just as in Christ, just as if I've always obeyed perfectly because of what he's accomplished. The law of Moses cannot justify a single person. And oh, how we try to justify ourselves before God by our obedience and works, don't we? You see, this is not something you just need to hear the day you get saved. This is something you need to take your stand on every single day. We all stand condemned by the law of Moses. The law of Moses shows us where we fall short. If you wrongly think that you can stand before God approved on the merits of your own righteousness, even for an hour, all you need to do is to go to the Ten Commandments and then apply them the way Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Take the Ten Commandments, go to the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say about these things? And apply them the way Jesus does, and you just realize, okay, there's, there's, I am, I am undone. If there's no, other, if, if there's no other way to be righteous before God and accepted before God, then I'm undone, and we are. Apart from being justified by God. Again, John Bunyan. He has this great little line in a poem. It says this: "Run, John, run." the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. The gospel speaks of better things. It bids us to fly and gives us wings. The the, the law commands us to do things, and yet it gives us nothing by which to do it. In fact, it cuts off our hands and, and feet. The gospel bids us to fly with Christ, in Christ, and gives us wings. Do you understand? Do you understand the mind-boggling truth of justification, of being justified before God? I just got to admit, I don't know it nearly as well as I want to. I mean, I know it intellectually. I don't, I don't, um, I need to remind myself often. So many live in a cesspool of condemnation. 
so many live under a 20-ton boulder of guilt. Even Christians. And it's because they have not understood what it means to be justified. And they are in some way living under the law of Moses or their own, the law of Oprah or the, you know, whatever it is, some law, some way to be accepted by God. Thinking that our moral performance will tip the scale even an ounce in our favor before God is utterly foolish. We do it though. We try to. God requires a perfect righteousness. So, Paul says in his his message, by Jesus, you are justified, you, as first hearers, these Jewish people that were listening to him, and you as well, by, by Jesus, you are justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Amazingly, it's offered, get this, it's offered to ungodly people. (laughs) I think those are the only ones that need it. I think godly people, if if there ever was one, wouldn't need this gift. It's for ungodly people. Paul offered this stupendous gift, amazing gift of righteousness. Number three, Paul called for a wholehearted response from those who heard him. For, for a wholehearted response. In verses 39 to 43, I want you to notice three things that Paul says and how he urges his hearers to respond. First in verse 39, it says, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. First, it's believe, believe. God's justifying freedom, God's justifying or gift of righteousness comes through Believing. Now, we saw earlier that believing is a gift from God, right? It's something that God grants us as a gift. Everyone who was appointed to eternal life believed. It was a gift from God, but the people who believed really did believe. It was a gift that God gave them, but they really exercised faith. They exercised believing. They believed. It doesn't say God believed for them. It says they believed. You must believe, which is not a believe as a verb, okay? It's a verb. You are to believe. You are to have faith. And God's gift of believing is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing reality. In other words, we are to take our stand daily on the finished work of Christ. I don't know about you. I don't feel that spiritual when I wake up at 6 in the morning. I don't feel that holy as if I do other times, you know, in myself. I need to stand on the gospel. I need to stand on the gospel. We need to take our stand on this truth every day in faith, trusting in Christ. In one very, very real sense, we do not move beyond this. And think about what is the worship in heaven What are they singing about in heaven? What what do we see in Revelation? They're singing about the lamb who is slain. They're singing about the blood of Jesus poured out for the undeserving. 
Let your daily confession be, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Or we sang the song earlier. When, when I heard Luke playing the song this morning when I came in early, I was like, we're doing the song, aren't we? I love the la- one of the last refrains of when heaven came down, when it says, justified fully through Calvary's blood. Oh, what a standing is mine. Now I have a hope that will surely endure after the passing of time. Take your stand daily. Believe. But Paul says more. He doesn't, say, he doesn't just say believe. Verses 40 and 41, he also says this. Beware. So he says believe. Then he says beware. Lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. We are to not only believe, but we're to beware. It's a warning as well. Beware of moving away from simple trust in Christ. Beware of coming too sophisticated, if you will, in your faith. Beware of moving away from the simplicity and purity of devotion and trust in the Lord Jesus. This was much of Paul's message to the church at Galatia. We went through Galatians last year. We taught through it as a church. This was much of his message to the church there. He says to them, you received the good news of Jesus. You received it. I saw you. I was there. You received this good news by which you were made righteous in in God's sight. But then you went back to another way. Why would you do that? Why go back to human performance as the measure of your acceptance before God? So Paul says, beware. There's always a temptation, either because of guilt and condemnation or because of pride, to go back to our performance as the measure of God's acceptance for us. So beware. Finally, in verse 43, Paul wants us to respond by believing and beware. And finally, in verse 43, Paul says, Paul and Barnabas, as they spoke to them, urged them this, continue in the grace of God. And I think that goes along with beware. Don't move away from the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. Continue all the way to the end. Grace from beginning to end. And we saw that earlier in Paul's message, right? God was the author of redemptive history from choosing Abraham and Israel as his chosen people, all the way to bringing them into the the promised land, to the coming of the Messiah, and even to the believing of people down to this day. Continue in the grace of God. We need to hear the same things. We need to hear to believe and keep believing. We need to beware of getting off the justification road and into the weeds of moral performance, and we need to be encouraged to continue in the grace of God all the way to the end. Number four, the outcome of Paul's sermon or message here that he was spreading was joy. Everywhere this message was received, there was joy. Joy spread. Where the message spread and people were uh, receptive to it and received it, joy spread there as well. 
verse 48. It says, when the, Gentiles, when the Gentiles heard that the gospel was not just for Jews, but it was for them as well. Here's what it says in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then at the end of the chapter, it's, it's actually our last verse. It's a great way to end this chapter. Verse 52, even amongst persecution, it says this, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? It says Paul and Barnabas, Paul and his companions were chased out of the region. And they shook the dust off their feet, kind of an act of defiance. And it says, and they continued. Now, the, the New American Standard actually puts a word continually. Most other translations don't put it there, but it's, it, that's the idea. They continued, continued, or excuse me, they continually were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. These disciples were continually, they went on their way filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now it says disciples. So I think it's generally saying Paul and his companions and also those who had just heard Paul preach and believed what he said. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The outcome of the good news of Jesus Christ is joy. It's joy. Earlier when I was talking about justification, I was seeing some smiles on faces like, oh, it almost sounds too good to be true, true right? It's, but it's not, too, it's not too good to be true. It's, it's so good. The best news in the world is true. It is that we can be, stand before God in that way. When people go from death to life, from being enemies of God to friends of God, from being condemned to justified, from being guilty to forgiven, when people go from being forsaken to delighted in by God. Joy. Joy. This sovereign, this big sovereign God, how can there not be an explosion of joy? among those who really believe this and experience it and know it and walk in it. We saw the same thing in the book of, in, in Acts chapter 8 when Philip went to Samaria after the disciples were scattered from Jerusalem. It says he went to Samaria and he's filled with the Spirit, of course, and he began preaching the kingdom and about Jesus and was casting demons out and healing people and people were getting saved and delivered and, and healed. And... I think it's maybe verse eight. It's, it's kind of like the last verse of that section. It says, and there was great joy in that place. I guess so. How could there not be? How could there not be? Remember when the announcement of the birth of Jesus came to the shepherds in the field. In Luke chapter two. You know, for me, like Christmas season is right around the, it's like it starts in October for me. I start singing Christmas songs and I want to put up our decorations pretty soon. And anyway, so, so I just had to pull out this Christmas passage. Anyway, so the birth of Jesus was announced and an angel appeared. The glory of the Lord shone around him. And what did he announce to the shepherds? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people, 
For unto you today is born in the city of David a child who's Christ, and he's the Lord. And then it says a host of angels showed up, and they put on a concert for these lowly shepherds, and they began singing and glorifying God because the Savior had come into the world, one who comes to justify us, and by justifying us, spread joy. Spread joy. It is full of joy in the Holy Spirit that will, th- this will motivate and move you and me to be sent out from here and sent into our spheres of life as well. It's being full of joy in the good news. The best news the world has ever heard. It's infinitely more urgent than Paul Revere's message. And it's a victory. It announces a victory infinitely more joyous than the announcement of Winston Churchill. We too are called to spread this message to our children, to our neighbors, to the people we work with, to old friends, to member people in our family. We too are called to spread the joyous news of this message. Isaiah 55, 12 says, this is my prayer for us today. You shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break in, break forth into singing. And all the trees of the forest shall clap their hands. Let's pray.